pray. Lord God, we do come before you as I have no doubt distracted beings, distracted by this world that we live in and all of the things that are happening. This season, family and get-togethers and our busy calendar, Lord, I find it difficult, uh, even on Sundays, Lord, to keep my mind from wondering. So, Lord God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill me this morning to proclaim your word boldly. And God, I pray your Holy Spirit would stir in the hearts of believers uh, to uh, help them pay attention. And God, may we be bathed in the scripture this morning of what it means that you came and took on flesh. Uh, we are thankful for you, that we celebrate you, and uh, we need you. We need you this morning. So I pray, God, don't pass us by and come and move among us. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is where we'll be at. <clears throat> you've been with us for a while, you know that we have been in Corinthians for quite some time, um, and we've got a long way to go in Corinthians, um, but we will be spending the month of Advent in Philippians chapter 2, which might be a little bit of an unusual text to have for Christmas, but it's the one we've chosen, and I think you'll see why. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2, Paul uh, after spending a great deal of time uh, reminding the, uh, the church of his struggles and what it means to live is Christ and what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and, and then spending a great deal of time reminding the church uh, to be unified, he then moves into chapter 2 and he says this, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. How many of y'all grew up in a Baptist church? <laughs> Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
So Paul spends the first four, four verses instructing the church in unity, one that we could definitely spend a great deal of time on. We have spent time on understanding what it means to be unified. Um, that is not the focus of today's message, but clearly in the first four verses, he spends a lot of time on that. And one of the ways that we as a church, as a young church, need to be reminded of how to be unified is to avoid what is very easy for everybody in here to have, and that is selfish ambition and conceit. Selfish ambition and conceit are anti to the church being unified. And he points to Christ as an example of how we should respond. And he says in verse 5 that we should have this mind among ourselves. By the way, if you think to yourself, I just can't do that. I struggle with self-ambition and conceit, and it's just hard for me as a Christian to ever move into that. I want you to recognize that in verse 5, it says, Have this kind of mind among yourselves, which is already yours in Christ Jesus. You already have access to this. When we become self, uh, selfish in our ambition and conceited, we just simply are not operating in what Christ has already given us. So we already have the power to do this. But he says to have this mind among yourselves in verse 5. And this is how we should behave in light of how we see Jesus' life and his actions. And then in verse 6, Paul says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Uh, The New English translation uh, translates this verse this way. Who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. The NIV translates this verse, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And so here is one thing that I want to make sure we establish really well as a church. As a church. Paul's laying it clearly and firmly in this passage Uh, Jesus did not come into existence in the manger. We need to understand that. Jesus did not come into existence in the manger. He has always existed. Always. In perfect unity with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Paul would write in Colossians 1, 15-19, he would say it this way. Jesus, he, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Some people would say, well, see, right there it says he was born. Well, the problem with that is verse 16. For by him all things were created, which means he had to exist prior to his birth in the manger. Otherwise, how could anything be created? So, verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in Christ, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Despite the fact that Jesus has always existed, despite the fact that he is a part of the Trinity, he did not use that fact to his own advantage when it came to obedience to his Father. Instead, he laid his advantage down. You say, well, what did he do? Well, Paul says, he draws this conclusion in verse 7, Jesus emptied himself. That's a powerful phrase in the scriptures. Jesus, by which all things were created and all things exist and all things were held together, Jesus emptied himself. Now, he did not give up his deity, but he did give up his advantage and glory. He laid it down. Uh, He could have said, I will not lay this down. That is not the mind of Christ. Instead, he emptied himself. Now, you may be saying, well, I don't quite understand what it means when he emptied himself and he became, uh, he put on flesh as God. Well, we see one example of a voluntary restriction that Christ placed upon himself in his Ability to be truly God and truly man. We see that in Matthew chapter 24. It's always in student ministry. It was always a verse that would carry on a great deal of discussion if you had enough Coke and cookies. Um, But Matthew chapter 24 verse 36 would say this. But concerning that day and hour, which is the return of the king, the return of Christ. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. Wait a minute. If Jesus is God, how can he not know of his own return? Because when he took on flesh, even though he was still truly God, he was also truly man, and he restricted his own abilities. That is what it means by Christ emptied himself. R.C. Sproul said it this way. I think the context of Philippians chapter 2 makes it very clear that what he emptied himself of was not his deity, not his divine attributes, but his prerogatives, his glory, and his privileges. He willingly cloaked his glory under the veil of his human nature that he took upon himself. It is not that the divine nature stops being divine in order to become human. Well, how did he empty himself exactly? Well, Paul continues, by taking the form of of a servant. That's powerful. We move over this too quickly. Those of us who have grown up in church and have heard these texts or have participated in enough candlelight services, we have lost this concept of what it means that Jesus emptied himself and he took on flesh and he came in the form of a slave. He laid down his advantage of his glory to be a servant to his father, to obey his father, and to serve men. Being born, Paul continues, in the likeness of men, by taking on flesh, and what is spectacular to me is if I'm Jesus, 
And we're not a cult, so I'm not. <laughs> Some of y'all are like, <gasps> if I was Jesus, somewhere someone's running with that line. <laughs> but anyway, Jesus did not take on the flesh of a human king, which I would have done. He, he didn't take on the flesh of a powerful leader. He didn't take on the flesh of a mighty human ruler. No, he took on the flesh of a simple, unremarkable carpenter. Born in a manger, announced to a group of, in that society, meaningless shepherds. That is what he did when he took on flesh. And in that fleshy servant, he emptied himself. Now, what is the significance of all this for us? Well, there's many. So let's just look at two. The first is Jesus must come in the flesh or our redemption does not happen. One commentator said it this way. If Jesus were only God and not truly man, then he could not save us. His humanity is inseparable from him being the second Adam, fulfilling all righteousness and taking upon himself all the obligations of God's law that must be fulfilled for us to return, re receive life eternal. Jesus spoke to this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? To fulfill them. You know why? Because you couldn't. They had been trying forever. And Jesus said, you can't do it. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. We hear this again in Romans 5, 17 through 19. For if because of one man's trespass... Adam, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And if you don't say amen there, you have no idea what Christmas is about. <laughs> do you understand what happened? You couldn't do it. And Jesus said, I will do it for you. I will, feel all of the, I will fulfill all of the righteousness for you. We see this in Hebrews chapter 2, our elder reading. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus took on flesh. He became like us. And by the way, for deity to do that, for deity to take on our flesh, he has to empty himself and become nothing. That also shows who we are. That's right. 
He became like us. He was tempted and yet without sin. Why is it so important that he take on flesh, that he become human? Well, verse 18 gave us a bit of a hint. Here's the second point, only two today. So that Jesus can sympathize with us in our struggles and our temptations. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16, said it this way. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Rich Mullins said it very simple on a song. He knows what it's like because he's been there before. He gets it. Christ gets it. John Calvin said it this way. Christ has put on our feelings along with our flesh. Jesus is truly God and truly human. He was both, and much is made of him being fully God. The church, well, I would say that. The church has not spent much time lately in, in making much of either of these, uh, because they just don't make much of the scriptures at all. But the church, historically, has done a pretty good job of getting us to understand that Jesus was fully God. Most of us understand that. We've heard that. We at least can wrap our minds around that. But I would argue, at least for me, maybe I'm alone, but I doubt it, we have great difficulty seeing Jesus as truly human. I'm going to unsanitize the scriptures a little bit here. Either will get me in trouble with the elders or make a point. The elders have just moved up in their chair a little bit. <laughs> Jesus probably burped. Jesus went to the bathroom. See how he just got uncomfortable? Jesus fell down. I imagine. Being fully human, he stumped his toe and didn't curse. <laughs> Jesus had to learn how to talk. The creator and sustainer of the voice box had to learn how to talk. The creator and sustainer of legs had to learn how to walk. We, we have a hard time wrapping our minds around this idea that Jesus was truly human. You would, I would think if you, if you read through the New Testament, um, for the most part, nothing in Christ's life that the average person saw made them think he was anything other than a common man. 
Jesus did supernatural miracles to show that he was God's son. Otherwise, his humanness would have stood out too much. He said, well, I don't know that I agree with that. They all said, what? Isn't this guy just a carpenter? And just for pondering here, did he ever cut a board wrong? Or just, did Joseph ever come along and say, that was the wrong cut? If he was truly human, he did. Hard for us to ponder. No one said, you know, Jesus, he's a carpenter. The peculiar thing about him, though, he has never been sick before. We got uncomfortable in here. You know, he's just a carpenter, but you know, he was speaking fluently all language in the manger. No one said that. No one ever said, I'm not playing cards with Jesus. Because he's, it's like he almost knows what you're holding in your hands. Like no one said any of this stuff. No one experienced that. Jesus was truly human and truly God. And when he touched his human nature, he did not know the return of him as king. But touching his truly God nature, he knew when they were going to arrest him in the garden. He was both. But listen, we struggle with this idea because we almost feel like we're going to fall off in heresy. Some of you are already like, I don't know that I would have said that. <laughs> but, but we struggle picturing Christ as truly human. But listen, everybody else in the Bible that he walked around, that he spoke around, that he lived around, all thought he was what? Human. They all thought he was human, which is why when he claimed to be God, they said, you can't be God. You're a carpenter. Gosh, I hope we don't have any carpenters in here today. <laughs> we, like, we like you a lot, more often when you show up on time. But I'm just throwing it out there. Or just show up. But anyway, um, but do you get that? How everybody else thought he was human? And he had to do a great deal of work to get them to understand that he wasn't human. And even when he did the supernatural stuff, they still didn't believe it. Because they thought he was human. And do you know why? Because he was truly human. That's what he was. And you say, I'm unconvinced. Well, John chapter 1, Jesus has a human body. In Luke chapter 2, he was born. In Luke chapter 2, verse 40 and 52, he physically grew. His body grew. If he had had regular, you know, pediatrician appointments, his weight would have changed at each one. He got tired in John chapter 4. In John 19, he was thirsty. He who is living water was physically thirsty. He became hungry. But if you feed on him, you will never get hungry. But he was hungry. In Matthew chapter 4, he became physically 
week. We see that also in Luke chapter 23. Also in Luke chapter 23, we see that he physically bled and he physically bruised and he physically died. You know why? Because he was truly human. And when he was resurrected, he had a human body. And he ate. Now, how he caught the fish with Peter, I don't know. I think they just called the fish up and they got on the grill. But anyway, <laughs> just think that's what he did. He got, he got him to bring him money. Just throwing that out there. That's not even in the notes. <clears throat> now, here's what I love about Christ in the Scriptures. Not only do we know that he was physically human, we also know he had human emotions. Now we're teetering on heresy, are we not? Here we go. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus marveled. In Matthew chapter 26 and in John 11, both speak that Jesus' soul was sorrowful. In fact, so much sorrow was in his soul that it was even too death. In John chapter 11, we find that he was deeply moved in his spirit and that he was greatly troubled. And in John chapter 11, verse 35, Jesus physically weeps. And we know that Jesus was mocked. He was attacked. He was falsely accused. He was even called crazy by his own family. Any of you can identify with that one? <laughs> right here. That is Jesus in the Bible. Do you remember that? His own family is like, he's crazy. He's lost his mind. Do you know why they thought he lost his mind? Because they thought he was human. He had taken on flesh. He was betrayed by someone close. He was brutally beaten by the very regime that Romans 13 says came into power because he put them there. He was spit on. He was humiliated. And he was crucified. He has experienced the whole spectrum of human emotions and circumstances just like you. You might say, well, I'm a single mom. Has he ever slept for only two hours at a time and woke up and fed a child? No. But he's been exhausted and he's been tired. He understands. And for the record, have you ever met Satan in the desert? He has. Even in his prayer life, we find the emotions of Christ. Hebrews chapter 5, 5 through or 7 through 9 says this in, his, in the days of his flesh, that's in the Bible, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. Any ever cried and wept during prayer time? You're overcome so much with emotion that you just yell. 
He made supplications with loud cries and the tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him. So is he worthy? Our God left heaven. He emptied himself. And he took on the form of a servant by being born in the likeness of man. We do not have a God who says, you want me? I want you, God, that you need to come up here. You need to check off all the boxes. You need to get yourself right. You need to do all these things. And when you get them all right, then you can approach me. As one commentator said, one of the major differences between Christianity and the world's religions is that the world's religions do not have a realistic view of human nature, since they all teach salvation by human effort or goodness. All religions, except Christianity, tone down both the bad news of our sinfulness and the good news of free grace found in God. None of the world's religions present any good news that someone has liberated us from the reign of sin and death. In Christianity, salvation comes not from us getting it all right, not from us doing all of the rules the right way, not from us doing all of the law. No, no, no. Salvation comes to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and not from human effort. And that is why when he comes in the manger, we see our redemption. redemption. We see the Lamb of God, the very Lamb of God that John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is what we see in the manger. Behold, the Lamb of God who is coming to do what I cannot do. And that is good news today for us. We have a God who loved us so much that he knew we couldn't clean up. And so he took on flesh, and he did it for us. As one of the songs that we sometimes sing here says, he won our redemption. And as the scripture says in Hebrews, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So now we can go to him in our darkest moments far away from Christmas lights and joyful songs, when you've been betrayed, when you've been disappointed, when your expectations have not been met, when the curveballs come in life and you're overwhelmed with struggle and discouragement and depression, when you are washed over with suffering and grief, we almost, to an extent, feel guilty to even come to God when we're like that. We attempt to hide our reality, this humanness that we live with. And yet God, who took on flesh, says, bring that to me. And I will not say to you, I don't understand why you're this way. Instead, he will say, I've been there. And you can find strength and mercy in me. Man, that is why Hebrews 4 is so good. 
for we do not have a high priest. We have a high priest, but we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. How many of you have ever been going through something difficult and someone said to you in your difficult circumstance, they said, I know how you feel, and in your... In your spirit, you didn't say it because maybe you're matured in Christ, but what you want to say is, you don't know jack about what I'm going through. Have you ever been there? I've been there. Our Savior, our high priest, is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Because in every respect, he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And because of that, the writer of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence, boldness, confidently draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. That manger represents to us, it represents us being able to see Christ as our helper in our most difficult times. We will never hear Jesus say, I don't understand what you're going through. Instead, he will say, I understand what you're going through. And come to me because I did it right. And I can teach you how to do that. We have one who actually understands. So is he worthy? Oh, yes, he is. Jesus is worthy. He came and he took on flesh and he understands what you're going through. And he invites you to come. All ye who are heavy burdened, Come and find the Christ who understands. That is the good news of the gospel. And you would say to yourself, what exactly do you mean by the gospel? This is the gospel. That you were born into sin. Nobody had to teach you how to sin. You sin naturally, all on your own. In fact, it's Christmas time, sin goes up. <laughs> Frustrations get shorter, people are already honking at everybody, there's already been Facebook flooded with fights in toy aisles, seriously, that happens. Everyone knows how to sin, and we know how to sin really well. And that sin separates us from a holy Holy, holy God, who can have nothing to do with sin. And yet, even in our full rebellion, in our cosmic treason, as R.C. Sproul would say, towards our holy God, he loved us while we were sinning. And he loved us so much that he sent Christ, who emptied himself, and he took on flesh, and he came and he was obedient, as we'll find in the rest of Philippians chapter 2. He was obedient to death. He took on our sin. And we have an opportunity because of his death for those who repent and believe that we can receive his righteousness. <coughs> One man's sin sent us into condemnation. One man, Christ's righteousness, 
leads us back to the Father. And that is good news, folks. That's such good news for us. You say, well, how do I, what do you mean by repent and believe? Repent means to look at the way you're going and say, this will not work. I need to go a different way. And you walk away from the way you were living and you pursue Christ. And what do you mean by believe? You know and believe that Jesus is who he said he is and he did what he said he did and that that redemption is available for you. And when you repent and you believe, which by the way is the only thing the Bible ever tells us to do, there are no secret magic words or magic prayers. We repent and we believe. Then we are made new in Christ. And you would say, well, how do we know that that's true? Because your life will never be the same again. You can't meet the Savior and stay the same way. Now, will you fail and struggle? Absolutely. But there'll be something birthed in you that you've never had birthed before. Where you will feel your sin and you will understand that that was not what God intended for you. And you will walk back toward God. I hope that as we approach this Christmas season... And as you see lots of manger scenes and candles and all kinds of things about Christ, that you will be reminded that he was truly God and truly human. And that you will find great comfort the next time you're in your car and life has overwhelmed you or the next time the family has overwhelmed you. Already went through that in Thanksgiving, amen. Or work has overwhelmed you and you are in despair and discouraged and in depression. Whatever the things can overcome you, that you can boldly, as a child of the king, walk into his throne room and he will never say, Get out. He'll never say, What do you want? And as you pour out your heart to him, he'll say, I get it. I've been there before. I know what it's like. Let me help you. Let me give you grace and mercy in your time of need. And that should make us the most joyful people on earth to know that we have that in Christ. As Keith comes, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you are so good to us. Thank you for not asking us to come up to you because we would have never done that. We would have never pursued you, Lord. Instead, Lord, I am thankful that you came and pursued me. God, I pray that we would take advantage of your throne room. That we would come in as often as we possibly can to lay our burdens and our struggles and our heartaches and our confusion and our doubts and that, God, we would find great comfort in you. You are so worthy, God. And I pray that would be the anthem of this church. That no matter what happens in our life, we would call you worthy of all praises and all glory. We love you. Pray in this time that you would move in some hearts shake us from our passions for this world and help us understand what it means to live lives worthy of the gospel. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.